So I had uh, some people say to me this week, boy, they're really excited, uh, you know, about uh, the message this weekend on anger that uh, they know we're going to talk about. And one, I want to know why they're excited about that. But I also said to them, and this is really important for you, even before we pray, I said, you, you do know that we're talking about what Jesus said about anger. That's really important. We're not talking about what Dr. Phil says about anger. We're not talking about what a great new Christian book says about anger or even what the epistles say about anger. We are confining ourselves in a good way in this series to the red-letter part of your Bibles, uh, what Jesus said about these subjects. So anger and success and worry and, and, and the poor and, and heaven, things like that. And so if you're interested in what Jesus had to say, then you're in for a good ride today. If you're not, now you'll get through the next 40 minutes, but, but uh, I, I'm interested in what Jesus has to say. And so Cactus and Venue are joining us right now via video, and so let's all pray together as we go into the Lord's words. Father, I thank you for all that you have given us, for the blessings that you've given us in Christ, and for the words that we have of his. And so, God, we are interested today in what he had to say about anger, and we pray, God, that uh, you might challenge our hearts and our minds when it comes to our anger and that we might follow our Savior in what he instructs us. Lord, we know that in the end, as hard as it might be, it'll give us life to our souls and that we find that sweet spot with you. And so we pray that you would speak to us now in Christ's name. Amen. So when it comes to what Jesus had to say about anger, I have good news and bad news. Here's the bad news first, and that is that Jesus didn't say all that much in volume about anger. He didn't say all that much. In other words, we really only have one key passage in which Jesus directly talks to us about anger, one passage in which there are six verses in it. And you compare this to happiness, in which Jesus referenced that almost 70 times in his teaching, you can see that anger kind of got the, the short stick when it came to Jesus' teaching. Or, or did it? Because here's the good news, and that is that though Jesus only references anger a few times and talks directly uh, about it only once, what he actually does tell us about anger is more than enough to get us on the right track in dealing with this very human emotion that we all experience and even get on track with it enough to challenge us for the rest of our lives on how we deal with and respond to anger. And so enough said. Let's read what Jesus had to say about anger. If you brought your own Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 to 26. If you didn't bring a Bible, I have put the scripture on your outline as well as up here on the screen. And I'm going to be reading today from a different translation, the New American Standard Bible, because I like this translation when it comes to some of the specific words that we're going to parse out or look at here in just a few minutes. So Matthew 5 verses 21 to 26, Jesus is speaking and he says this, you have heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court and whoever shall say to his brother Raka shall be guilty before the Supreme Court and whoever shall say you fool shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. 
If therefore you are presenting your offering at the altar, there remember that your brother has, and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar, go your way, first be reconciled to your brother, and then come present your offering. Make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you are with him on the way, in order that your opponent may not deliver you to the judge and the judge to the officer, and you be, and you be thrown in prison. Truly I say to you, you shall not come out of there until you have paid up the last cent. I warned you last week that Jesus' words are hard words on almost everything that he teaches. And we're seeing that here with anger. These are difficult words, let alone to understand, to apply to our lives. And so I want us to do a deep dive today into these words to fully understand what Jesus was saying here, because if you're willing to wrestle with what Jesus says here and apply it meaningfully to your life, it will minister to your soul, I promise. So, so as we do a deep dive into this, let's begin by understanding the context of these words. Context is always important. Uh, this passage here in Matthew uh, has Jesus about a quarter of the way through his very famous Sermon on the Mount. And he's embarking in this point in his sermon uh, by using six key statements or commands found in the Old Testament in which Jesus is going to try to convince his audience and the religious leaders of his day that they have only been conforming to the bare essentials, kind of the outward conformity of the command, and they've missed the heart of God behind the commandments. And in other words, what Jesus is doing at this point in his sermon is trying to get what to what lies beneath. He's getting to the heart of it all, not just the outward commandment, but to God's intent behind a commandment for all of our lives. You're saying, well, what do you mean? Oh, well, let's look at the passage before us again and look at what Jesus does with the, com- the commandment, do not murder. He says, you have heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder. Pause right there. That is the sixth commandment of the Big Ten found in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 17. He's quoting the Old Testament. And then he quotes another part of the Old Testament, and you've heard it said that whoever commits murder shall be liable in a court. Again, Numbers 35, verse 30, Jesus is directly quoting the Old Testament on the idea of murder. Now notice what he says next. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty, the implication being guilty of murder, before the court. And you've got to believe that his original audience initially responded by saying, did you just hear him right? I I mean, is he equating murder, this this huge crime, one of the big Ten Commandments, with anger, this everyday human emotion that we all experience? And the answer is yes. That's exactly what Jesus is doing here. He's exploding the intent of the Old Testament commandment to not murder, to include what lies beneath, in this case, anger. And he's not doing it for the sake of effect. He's not being hyperbolic, overstating the case for, to prove a point. He really means what he says here, that, that, that anger is such a strong emotion that in many ways it has the power and capacity to kill things in and around you. What's that about? 
Uh, two points that I want you to wrestle with that I think come directly out of Jesus' teaching here that instruct us about anger when we let it reside too long in our souls. Two things that are very challenging to our lives today, but as I've been saying all along, very life-giving. Here's the first thing, and that is that Jesus is telling us that the progressive nature of anger leads to all kinds of relational separation, and I would add even death. Let me repeat that. There is a progressive nature of anger inside you and inside of me when it goes unexamined and it begins to run rampant in our lives. And when it goes unexamined, it leads to all types of relational separation and even death. Jesus couldn't be more clear. Look at verse 22 when he's equating anger with murder. He says, but I say to you, that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court, and whoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court, and whoever shall say, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Now, folks, not every commentator agrees with what I'm about to teach you, but many do, and that's what some Bible experts point out here, is that there's a progressive nature of anger that Jesus is teaching us here. When you look closely at the text here, he's talking about the fact that anger, if gone unchecked, can lead to a second stage, raka, and then if raka gone unchecked, can lead to a third stage, fool. And that there's a progression that exists. I'll show you what all this means in a minute here. But all you need to know right now is that it's a progression that if gone unexamined and unchecked in our lives leads to a very bad place for us. Let alone for the people around us that we might be mad at. Let alone whether we're justified or not in our anger. Notice he's not even talking about that. He's just saying anger that lives too long in the human soul will progress by its very nature when gone undealt with, and it will lead to a very dark and not so fun place for people that allow it to get that way. So notice with me uh, that it all begins with just being angry. Again, whether right or wrong, just being angry. Jesus says, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. I've looked up over the years just about every single word in this passage in the original Greek that it was written in. The word everyone there is a fascinating word. You know what it literally means in the Greek? Say it with me. Everyone. Yeah, isn't that amazing? We got that word right in the English. It means everyone. This applies to every single human being on planet Earth. God knows that. Jesus knows that. So he says everyone. Brother most likely carries with it the same sense as in the Good Samaritan, meaning neighbor, anybody in and around you. And interestingly, uh, the King James Version of the Bible quotes it this way. Isn't this fascinating? It says, everyone who is angry without a cause with his brother shall be guilty. It adds a phrase, without a cause. But, but that didn't occur in the earliest manuscripts of the Bible, so it doesn't occur in most translations of the Bible, uh, because most likely it was added by a scribe later on to try to soften Jesus' words here. Isn't that interesting? Even thousands of years ago, they thought, boy, boy, this is a harsh teaching. How can we tone this thing down a little bit? Because at the very least, what Jesus is saying here in just this very first stage is that when you're angry with another person, just angry, 
Whether you're justified or not, whether you're right or wrong, you are now in uncharted territory. You're now in the realm of very real potential relational trouble, and you should be very careful at this point. Isn't that interesting? Now, notice with me that Jesus then talks about a next step in, that, in this progression, and that is raka, raka. That Jesus says, and whoever shall say to his brother raka shall be guilty before the supreme court. So notice, interestingly here, that, that, that I call it a progression because it was first you're guilty before a court. You're now in the realm uh, uh, of dangerous territory. Now, at the second stage, it's a heavier court, the Supreme Court. The NIV translates this the Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish high court. But obviously, the operative word here is the word raka. This is why I use the New American Standard Bible here, because they just leave this word alone. It's an Aramaic word that was common and popular in Jesus' day, and they just translate it just as it is here. It's called actually a transliterated word, raka. And what you simply need to know is that in Jesus' day, this Aramaic term was simply a term of contempt. The most literal translation is one who is empty. It would be you and I today maybe calling somebody an airhead or a jerk or a numbskull or a bonehead or an idiot. Do I need to go on and on? We all have terms today that we use that would be similar to raka. It's not a playful term. You're not teasing anybody. It's got venom behind it. It's got a bite behind it. And the reason that this is important to dial into is that it's always an insult. Uh, raka is when you go from just being mad at someone, now don't miss this, to stewing on it in such a way that you start to make a conclusion about what that person has done and what it says about this person as a person. This is really important. Raka starts to make character judgments. You start to define the person that you are mad at through the lens of your anger and this definition begins to take on thoughts and words similar to raka. So we all know how this works. Somebody makes you angry, and instead of checking the anger at the door of your mind and your heart, you begin to think to yourself as you stew on it, or maybe even say to yourself or others or even to that person, what a jerk, what a stupid idiot he or she is. I can't believe that he or she did that. What a, and you fill in the blank. And Jesus is saying, now don't miss this, that when you progress to this next stage of anger, this raka stage, it has now propelled you into the realm or into the territory that it is now threatening that human relationship. Figuratively speaking, you are now in a human court, a high human court, because you're allowing your anger to make judgments on another brother's life, and you're beginning to say and do things that are really hard to become undone. And unless something happens to help you get over this anger, and Jesus will help with, with that in just a second here, relational death or separation from that brother is imminent when anger gets to the raka stage. And so again, isn't it interesting? Even if you feel justified in your anger, even if you are justified in your anger and you've gotten the raw end of the deal, Jesus is more concerned about the anger in your heart. And he's more concerned about what you do with it. And he says, if you let it sit and you don't examine it and respond, as I'm going to tell you to in a minute, it's going to progress to this stage and it's going to threaten your soul, your very life, as well as the person or people around you. 
And yet, mind-blowingly, Jesus isn't finished yet. You'd think that would be the worst. It's not. He goes on to a third stage here that we simply have to call because of the text, the fool stage. He says, and whoever shall say you fool shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Now, here's why I believe that Jesus is talking about a progression here. Because he goes from court to Supreme Court to hell. And this is why I say his teachings are really challenging here. I mean, obviously, he's getting more serious as he goes along. Now, let's focus on that word fool there. It's interesting. Almost every Bible translation out there translates this Greek word into the English as fool. And though I don't know what a better translation would be, one thing I need to tell you as we focus on this stage in this word is that the word fool there, at least the way most of us use it today, would be way too mild for what Jesus originally meant. I mean, if I call Howard sitting in the front row here a fool, obviously that's not a very kind thing to say to him, but you could think of a lot worse things that I would say, right? I mean, a fool is just, I don't know, it's just not all that strong of a word today. But here's what you need to know. In Jesus' day, this word fool was used to describe somebody who was morally debased. It was a term of vilification, not just making a character judgment like Raka, but actually committing character assassination. As the famous theological dictionary of the New Testament, one of the great sources that helps us understand the etymology of phrases and words uh, for us pastors, as it says, I quote, fool suggests that one, has thus char- that one thus charged has no capacity for right thought or action, and he is thus denied all confidence and all fellowship. So essentially, in Jesus' day, if you called somebody a fool, you were going from saying that they did a bad thing to you to they are a bad person. And you're basically saying, they are worthless in my sight. I want nothing more to do with them for the rest of my life. I'm writing them off in my mind and heart. It's the last progression of anger gone unchecked. It was a term that was used back then for, again, a very, very strong judgment on another person. And what Jesus says is that when you get to this third stage in your anger, when you make this kind of character assassination, you have now stepped into the realm of playing God. How do we know that? Because God says, it is mine to avenge. Again, even if you are justified in your anger, God says, it's not for you to make that kind of character assassination. This is my creation. This is a person I made in my image. Leave him or her to me. You're not to step in the place of playing God there. He says, it's mine to avenge. Judge not that you be judged. But as soon as you allow your anger to get to that point, Jesus says, you're now playing God. And because of that, there's going to come a judgment upon you as well. In fact, Jesus talks about that fiery hell. That's an interesting phrase that the NASB uses here because it it actually, in the original Greek, refers to a physical place just southwest of Jerusalem known as the Valley of Hinnom, a symbolic place that was kind of hot and desolate that the Israelites kind of associated with God's judgment. And, And so that's the phrase Jesus is using here that we translate fiery hell. It was just a hot place in Israel where they kind of associated it with hell. So I guess we do that today when we say something like, you know, in August, Phoenix is hot as, I don't say that, but some of you say that, and, 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 and we, we use this little idiom, Phoenix is hot as, 
And, and, and I always laugh when people say that. I think to myself, because it's really not as hot as. As is going to be a lot hotter than Phoenix in August. And so I don't think I want to use that phrase. But, but we do that, and they did that back then. And, and that's what this is referring to here. So simply notice this final stage of anger, gone unchecked, begins to have deep spiritual ramifications as one is committing character assassination, not just judgment, but assassination on one of God's creations, another human being. And again, though they might deserve it, you say, because again, you feel justified even in your anger or hatred, God says that's not for you to decide, that's for him to decide. And it's interesting to be sure about all of this, Jesus would use the word fool himself on only a couple of rare occasions, usually reserved for pastors. For the, for the religious leaders of his day. And what most Bible experts point out is that it was a divine judgment Jesus was making because he was God come in the flesh. He had the right to do that. You and I don't. But we do. We do it all the time. You, you see, here, here's what I know about this progression. This is what you and I need to wrestle with today. You and I have a lot of familiarity with this progression. If you and I were having a Starbucks today, and, and just you and me, and I, and I asked you, has there ever been a time where you've experienced this progression in your life, where you've gone from anger to raka, and even to fool, my guess is 98% of us, at least, would say you have. I have. And as I said, kind of fun-lovingly over the years, if your pastor has, you guys are goners, because I'm surrounded by, like, spiritual people and reminders of righteousness all the time. I can't get away from it. You guys live in the real world. And you have to deal with things every day that pull, push your buttons and pull at you trying to follow God. And so I know that all of us are familiar with this progression Jesus is talking about here. And all Jesus is saying here is that if you don't do something about it, if you let it just run wild in your heart and go very quickly from anger to raka to fool, you're going to be in a miserable place with God you're going to be in a miserable place as you're probably going to make some, uh, how do I say, have some things happen in, the, in your relationship base that, that you're just not going to be able to undo very quickly. And before you know it, that anger that you've been living with for so long begins to stink up your soul. That's what Jesus is trying to get us to see here. I know this illustration will date me somewhat. I've been, as you guys know, I turned 50 this last year, and so I feel dated already in my life. But when I was a teenager back in the late 70s and early 80s, there was a popular home appliance that I don't see as much in kitchens anymore, and it was a personal trash compactor. I've put a picture of it up here. And I don't see them a lot in kitchens anymore. I've seen a few. But when I was growing up, even in the Midwest, if families could afford it, there was a time where it was just really popular to have a trash compactor. My mom was always a neat freak, and so she had an avocado-colored trash compactor. That, that dates you right there. Uh, in, in, our living, not in our living room, in our kitchen. She would have put one in the living room, too, if she could have. And, and for this story, what you need to understand is that I grew up in a day where we didn't have iPods, iPads, video games. We didn't even have cable television. Some of you remember those days. We had UHF and VHF, three channels and then a couple of weird ones. And, and, and so we didn't watch much TV. We couldn't. And so when we got this trash compactor when I was in high school, we had a lot of fun with it. 
and, and, and mom told us not to have fun with it, but when mom was away, me and my brother Pete would just put anything we could in the trash compactor, and we'd play with it for hours. And we'd put in like an empty milk jug with a lid on it, and we'd pop, you know, and we thought, ooh, that's fun. You know, and we'd, then we'd find a watermelon in the fridge, and we'd put a watermelon in it. Then my brother would say, we got grapes, and we put grapes in it, and let's add some flour. And it was like our own little baking thing, and we just put whatever we could find in the trash compactor. Where's my sister's hamster? Anything we could find. <laughs> no, I never did that, but we would find just about anything we could. And though mom told us to never put perishable items in the trash compactor because it packs it down and you don't empty it for a week, when she was away, we did. And after about three or four days of doing this, she would come in one day and there'd be this awful odor in the kitchen. And she would look at us and say, have you guys been playing with the trash compactor? To which we would give the usual teenage response and we'd say, huh? And, and she would know right away what we have done. See, here's what happens today with you and I. We get angry. And instead of responding to the anger, as we're going to see in a minute, like Jesus wants us to, because what Jesus is going to say about how to respond to anger, you're not going to like. It's really hard. But instead of doing that, we opt for plan B, and we just let the anger sit there. And then over time, as we stew on it, as it goes unchecked, we push it down, we push it down, we push it down. And because it's not made for our soul to have anger like that in us that long, over time, it begins to stink. It festers. It pollutes our soul. And some of us here today, some of us at Cactus and Venue, have been living with the same anger for decades over things that God wants us to begin to work through. Jesus' teachings are hard here. Anger, rock a fool. But he does it because he wants us to deal with our anger and not let it get to a stage that is not healthy for us and even for those around us. So the question becomes, what do we do with our anger? I mean, knowing that we're all going to get angry at times in our lives and maybe even lots of times in a fallen world, how do we deal with it in such a way that we avoid this dangerous progression and even the destruction that ensues? Look at what Jesus says in verses 23 to 25. Again, we're staying right with Jesus' words. He says, If therefore you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar, and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. Make friends quickly. In other words, this is point two on your outline. Anger needs to be dealt with immediately by attempting or seeking resolve. Now again, you guys aren't going to like this because Christians hate to do this second point here, but we need to park in front of this and understand what Jesus means here, that, that anger needs to be dealt with immediately by seeking resolve. First, notice that Jesus has an imminency here to our anger. He wants us to do something right away. And the reason we know that is because he says that even if you're in the middle of church singing your favorite song or listening to the pastor, or in, even in the middle of communion or something really holy like that, and you realize that your anger is going unchecked, what does he say to do? Leave it and go quickly and make resolve. I, I mean, he couldn't be more clear there. So, so there's no other priority that could take the place of you dealing with this anger than to deal with it. That's what Jesus says. And the best way to deal with it, he says, not the only way, because there's other scriptures that the Bible will give us, but the best way Jesus gives us is to attempt 
resolve to go to the other person that you are mad at and attempt to hash out the issue and find a way toward mutual resolve. Jesus couldn't be more clear on that. Something that most Christians don't like to do, something that most of us have a really difficult time doing, Jesus says to do. Leave your gift and go. That's how he wants us to respond to our anger. And let's be honest, the reason that we don't like to do this is that for any of us who have been Christians for any length of time, we have tried this in the past because we were told we should do this, and we've gone to another person and we've done our best to state our case of what or why we're angry, and we've even used I language and shared our feelings and things like that, and it didn't work, right? We've gone to them, and, and we've stated our case as best we can, and then they state theirs back. And then they basically say, well, I don't agree with you. And then it's really tense and awkward, and say, well, okay, see you in heaven, and then we go on our way. <laughs> I mean, that's what we do as Christians. And, and then we hear a sermon or the pastor say, you got to temp resolve. And in your mind, you're saying, I've tried that and it didn't work. And so we just don't do it anymore. That's the way the average Christian lives today. Now, uh, two things I want to mention about that. First, before I give you what will help you in your going, because Jesus has some things about that as well. Think about what your option is if you don't go. <laughs> See, that's, what you, that's how you have to consider this. It's almost the worst of two evils, if you will. I mean, you say it's a bummer that I have to go and try to seek resolve. But the reality is, if you don't go, you're stuck with your anger. And you're stuck doing nothing with your anger except trying to get rid of it on your own. God never promises you that if you go to seek resolve, don't miss this. God never says if you seek resolve that you will find resolve. He just says that if you seek resolve, he will do something in you to help you with your anger. Do you see the difference there? He says, as far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Doesn't mean you're gonna be at peace with all men, but there's something about the process of going that God says, I will work in you to help this not go from anger to raka to fool. Now, there are two things, two further things Jesus teaches us that, that, that really show us this, that, that we do when we go to another person that most Christians don't do, but Jesus tells us to do, when we go to another person, that, that really do make all the difference. And again, this is why most of us don't want to do this, but this is why we need to do it. And those two things are that before we go to another person, we each need to individually in our lives engage in repentance and forgiveness. Even if you are completely justified in your anger, even if you feel that you are the one who was completely wronged, Jesus says, deal with your own repentance and deal with in the realm of forgiveness before you go and it will make going a lot smoother and even if they don't hear you you're going to be armed with the tools you need to deal with your anger this is eminently biblical and by repentance i mean your repentance do i need to say that not the other person's so i'm not saying that you go and say you know pastor said i need to go armed with repentance are you ready to repent that's not what i'm talking about I'm saying that you take a look at your own soul and ask yourself in this anger that you have with another person, is there anything that I have contributed to this that I need to own first? Guys, here's what I know. We're all fallen. And even if it's 90% the other person's fault, 
there's probably is about 10% on your end. I, I, I've been doing this for 30 years. I've been married for 26 now. And I can tell you that, that every time, even when I think it's completely Kim's fault, that I feel totally justified in my anger, as I slow down and get with God, he always reveals just a few things that I contributed to this process and those I need to repent of. Uh, Jesus said it this way very clearly. He said, I did not come to call the righteous, but I came to call sinners to repentance. Repentance simply means a change of mind, literally turning from that which you know is wrong. And he calls us to repent in all situations, especially when we attempt to go to another person. And then he calls us to forgive. Now, this is the real grenade that you throw into the situation. That even before you go, you go. Now, forgiveness is a process, but you go as best you can, having already started the process of forgiving. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 14 and 15, for if you forgive men their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But then he adds a warning. If you do not forgive, then your Father will not forgive you. That's pretty hard teaching. But Jesus does that because he knows how important it is that you and I enter in to the relational problems we have with those around us, especially when we're very angry, armed with forgiveness because forgiveness is powerful in making sure you don't progress in your anger. It's just that forgiveness is not easy at all, but it is attainable as we get in touch with God's forgiveness of us. So as we go, we go with repentance. We go with forgiveness. And here's all I know, folks. If you go like that, even if the other person isn't willing to reconcile with you, even if they're not willing to own anything, as you go through that process, I have found, at least in my life, that God has entered in and done something in me with the anger that I have. i got to be careful about some of the illustrations I share with this because, um, you know, they involve people close to me. Have you ever found you mostly get angry at people close to you? And uh, about 20 years ago, I, uh, I got very angry at one of my relatives. It's not somebody in my immediate family, but it's a relative who, who we see often and I love. And I got angry at this person because of uh, something this person did to another one of my friends. And it was a pretty serious thing. And, and I was in seminary at the time back in Chicago. And, and, and it just always stuck with me. And as a result of that, I probably pretty quickly moved into the raka slash fool stage. I made a lot of judgments upon this family member. I, I, I thought I hit it very well because I just kind of ignored this family member, as many of us do, and didn't see this person all that often. But but one day, this family member made a comment about me to my wife and said, well, Jamie hates me anyways, you know, or something like that. And I realized I hadn't been doing a very good job of hiding it. And yet every time I tried to broach the situation, I felt so justified in my anger. Because quite frankly, and I don't say this arrogantly, I, I was right. I mean, this person did a very unfair thing to one of my friends, and it was a serious thing, and it, and, and it bothered me. But, but I was wrong to hang on to it for so long, and it really did hurt their relationship with that relative, hurt my wife, and uh, it hurt me, I, I think, in my walk with God over time. Probably about five or six years ago, since I'd been here in Scottsdale, I came to a point in my time with God, my quiet time, where I realized I, I need to repent of this. And, and though I was justified in some of the ways I was angry at this relative, I, I, I responded all wrong. I hung on to it way long. I never even tried to forgive. And for all those reasons, I was wrong. Now, isn't this interesting? I didn't even have to go to this person <laughs> to hash that out. 
I, I'm not even sure that would have been helpful. I just had to repent. And the next time I saw this person, our, this relative, I needed to change my demeanor toward this relative. And it wasn't easy. I, I mean, 20 years of building up certain emotions toward another person, do we all understand that doesn't go away in a decision? That doesn't go away in a quiet time. But I found in multiple contexts that I'm with this person, as I have changed my attitude, my love has grown, my forgiveness has deepened. In fact, I mean, it, it's just not even there. I mean, the issue's not there. And, and I've really grown to respect and care about this relative. All because I repented and I forgave, even though it took a very, very long time. I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, well, Jamie, okay, that's kind of a safe story. You don't understand my situation. I mean, mine's much bigger than that. And you don't understand how hurt and wounded and angry I am. And I just don't think I could forgive. And I have nothing to repent of, so leave me alone. <laughs> that's what you're saying right now. Here's the thing I do know, though. You're right. Maybe I've never had, let's be honest, maybe I've never had to forgive something as big as you do. You're probably right. But I know Christians that have. And I could tell you story after story of people who have experienced even worse things than you have. And they have applied the words of Jesus in not allowing the progression to go much further, in applying repentance and forgiveness, especially forgiveness, and they have found freedom in the words of Jesus. My hero here is a woman by the name of Corey Ten Boom. Some of you know of her. She's now with the Lord, I believe. And Corey Ten Boom was a survivor of the Nazi concentration camps. She was living in Holland at the time that it all came down. Her family were, was helping Jews, and she ended up in a concentration camp with her two parents and her sister Betsy. And her parents died at the hands of guards, and her sister Betsy died in front of her at the hands of, of the guards and the treatment that they got in the concentration camp. And, and Corey survived, and as a Christian, had to try to make sense of all that atrocity in light of God. And, and at one point, she actually saw some of the guards after the war that had been responsible for the bad treatment and for even for the death of her sister. And she had to ask herself, can she really forgive them? That's a huge deal. She made a couple of statements uh, over the years that I have thought were very profound. You see, Corey was able to forgive even atrocities like that because of the forgiveness that she latched onto with God. And because of the forgiveness that she had from Jesus Christ, she wrote about this. She was able to forgive even people that did such awful things like that. Uh, look up here on the screen. At one point she said this. She said, there's no pit so deep that Jesus Christ is not deeper still. When she was writing about her experience in the concentration camp, she said, yeah, that was dark, that was deep, that was awful. There's no pit so deep that Jesus Christ is not deeper still. When talking about forgiveness, she said this. I love this. She says, God throws our sin into the sea of forgetfulness. That's a direct quote from Scripture. But then she adds, and hangs a no fishing sign on the shore. <laughs> Meaning that God has forgiven Corey, he's forgiven you, so much so that he throws your sin into the sea of forgetfulness and he's never going to reel them back in. And you see, as Corey applied this to her human relationships, she realized that because of this deep forgiveness from God, I need to let go of things that will only eat up my own soul because they're just not healthy for me. You see, Jesus' words on anger might seem harsh to, the, to those of us. Maybe they don't even seem workable to you. But at the end, 
if I was you, I'd give them a try. Jesus knows what he's talking about here, and he knows what's best for you. And he doesn't want anger to eat you up. He doesn't want that to be your journey. He wants you to let go of it and to be free from it. And the only way you can do that is to stop claiming victim status, even if you are a victim, don't let that define you, and begin to forgive, and even if necessary, repent of your own stuff. Because just the process of that, Jesus says, is enough to give you freedom. So here's my take-home point to you. When it comes to your anger, deal with it. That's what Jesus says, just deal with it. If more Christians would live a self-examined life, if more Christians would just take what Larry Crabb calls an inside look and just look and have the honest evaluation of where you are in your anger, I think we deal with it much better. And as you do, just remember two things. Anger, raka, and fool. Just gauge where you are, be honest with yourself, and no matter where you land on that, land where Jesus says in the realm of forgiveness and repentance, and as you work through that process, even honestly with those around you, God says he will bring healing to your life. Let's pray. Father, I do thank you for the red-letter words in our Bible, the words of Jesus that teach us uh, profound things, albeit difficult things, about uh, these tough subjects in our life. And, and Lord, I'm so grateful that Jesus taught on these things and that even when it comes to anger, that he cares about the anger that resides in our soul, justified or not, and wants us to be men and women who are free from it. So help us to do that. Lord, I know that there are some right here today that are just stuck in the crucible of long-term and maybe even short-term anger that feels so intense. And I pray, God, that you would minister to them very closely now, even during this time of communion. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.